Well, good evening, church. You can have a seat now. Well, Pastor Skip sends all of you his love. He's teaching at a pastor's conference this week, but he's left us in good hands this evening. And before I ask our special guest teacher to come up here, let me just share a couple of things about him and his wife. Get this, way back in 1982, that's the year this church was founded, uh, this couple was a part of this fellowship. In fact, Pastor Joe Gross and his wife, Dia, are the first couple that Pastor Skip married as the pastor of Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque way back in 1982 over at uh, Roosevelt Park. Yeah, give it up for him. Pastor Joe Gross and his wife, Dia, are here with us tonight, and he'll be teaching. And it's amazing to think how they uh, had a home fellowship, kinships, what they were called back then, uh, for a number of years. And then in 1992, was it? God called you to the state of New York to work for a ministry there. And after being there for a year, God called them to Silver City, New Mexico, to found a church that... He's been pastoring now for 28 years. Yeah. Longevity and ministry should always be honored. And so with that, would you please give a very warm Calvary Church, Albuquerque, welcome to Pastor Joe Gross. Good evening. It is a wonderful blessing to be here in my home church. Um, I gave my life to the Lord in 1981. I was raised in a Catholic Hispanic family and didn't know much about the Lord. I knew, I mean, I went to church, I went to mass and did all of that, but I didn't have a, a personal relationship with Jesus. And I was given a Bible by a young lady that was a Christian that shouldn't have been trying to be around me at all because I was a bad influence on her. But I began to read the Bible and realized that I was lost. And so I gave my life to Jesus on Easter Sunday. And so that, that will be 40 years uh, this Easter. And so I heard Skip on the radio as a brand new Christian. My mother-in-law and my father-in-law said they'd heard this great teacher. And so I tuned into it. And my wife and I were only dating at that time. And so we listened in and found out that they were having a service at the Far North Movie Theater. And so we went to the service and Skip was up there leading worship. And there was the, the, the Jesu sisters, I think, believe they were, there were two sisters that were singing with him. And it was just a, a, a neat thing. And I had never heard the Bible taught like that. And so it was such a, an eye-opening thing for me because... Um, being raised in the Catholic Church when you went to Mass, you know, I remember, and I'm not trying to put that down or anything like that, but I remember when we got to the Our Father portion of the Mass, I was like, five minutes and we're out of here. You know, and, and it was as a kid, and I was an altar boy and all of that, but uh, hearing the Scripture taught like Skip did was just fantastic. And I just remember... I go, I got to go back there, and I couldn't wait to go back the next week, and go back the next week, and the next week. And so for 11 years, we were part of this fellowship, and uh, we started a kinship in Bernalillo, where I'm from. Uh, you know, it's kind of, Bernalillo's like Nazareth, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, <laughs> Bernalillo. <laughs> so forgive me. So, but by the grace of God, the Lord saved me, and, and so we started a kinship in Bernalillo, and we did that for a lot of years. 
and that was a real blessing and we just grew a lot during that time and it's just been a, a blessing to serve the Lord the whole time. How many of you guys um, are from this area that grew up around here? Did you guys grow up here? How many of you guys remember this? Some of you old people, you young people won't remember this, but some of you older people, you can tell I'm old, right? Gray hair and everything. Well, um, how many of you remember a show called Dialing for Dollars? Does anybody remember that? So as a kid, I remember we'd come home from school and Dialing for Dollars would be on or, or during the summer we'd watch Dialing for Dollars and there was a lot of movies, or, you know, cowboy and Indian movies back then. I don't know if you can say that anymore, but that's what they were called back then. <laughs> and so <laughs> politically correct stuff, you got to be careful nowadays. Uh, but how many of you remember these two characters, the Lone Ranger and Tonto? Does anybody remember th those two characters? I have a story about them before I get into my Bible study, this, our Bible study this evening. So the Lone Ranger and Tonto were, went camping, and they were out in the desert, and they got their tent all set up, and both men fell sound asleep. Some hours later, Tonto wakes the Lone Ranger and says, Kimosabe, look towards sky, what do you see? The Lone Ranger replies, I see millions of stars. Well, I'll tell you, said, asked Tonto. Well, what, what, what do I, I want to say to you, says Tonto, or something like that. He says, the Lone Ranger ponders for a minute. And then he says, astronomically speaking, it tells me there are millions of galaxies and potentially millions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Time-wise, it appears to be approximately a quarter past three in the morning. Theologically, the Lord is all-powerful, and we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, it seems that we have a beautiful day tomorrow. Well, what does it tell you, Tonto? And Tonto says, you are dumber than a buffalo. It means someone stole our tent. <laughs> anyway, you reminded me of dialing for dollars for some reason. And so open your Bibles up this evening to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, and we're going to be in chapter 1. And we'll begin reading at verse 12, and then we'll read some more after that. But let's read verse 12 down to verse 18. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. When I look at the book of Philippians, something that comes to my mind, or a word that comes to my mind, is the word inspiration. And the reason it comes to my mind, I'm thinking about this, is because of who wrote it, where he wrote it. The word inspiration in the Webster's Dictionary is defined like this. The act or power of moving the intellect 
or emotions. The quality or state of being inspired, also something that is inspired, an inspiring agent or influence. Now the very next word after that word in the dictionary is the word inspire. And it means to influence or move or guide by divine or supernatural inspiration, to enliven, animate, or incite. So that's how I feel when I read this book. And the reason I feel that way, and the reason it inspires me, is that Paul was writing this book and penning this book from a Roman dungeon. And so he's in a dungeon, he's there, and the, by the mere fact that he was faithful to the gospel in the first place. And not only that, but he saw his circumstances as divine providence. And instead of bemoaning or decrying his circumstances, he looked at it as a divine opportunity or a divine appointments or a blessing or an opening to share the gospel. So something else that inspires me about Paul is that his focus was definitely, definitely not on himself. He doesn't throw a pity party in this letter and say, let me tell you guys how hard it is being in this Roman dungeon. And so he doesn't do that. So we can see that it was not about him. It wasn't for his sake. It was all about Jesus. And that inspires me. You see, our focus makes all the difference in the world as to how we are going to view life and how we're going to see our circumstances. In verse 12 and verse 13, notice what he says once more. He says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has been, become apparent or evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. So we look at what he's going through here, the circumstances that he's in, and we might ask ourselves, how would I have fared under the same circumstances? Warren Wiersbe writes something I thought was interesting and challenging about Paul's circumstances. He says this, when you're living your life with a single-minded devotion to Christ, Romans 8.28 must be always a reminder that God is in control. And it's there that we're taught in Romans 8.28 that we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. And then Warren Wiersbe continues a little more and he says, The secret is this. When you have a single-minded devotion to Christ that rules your life, you will then be able to look at your circumstances through God's divine lens. And you'll see each one as God's, a God-given opportunity for the furtherance of the gospel and a time for growth or divine revelation in your own life. So Paul's circumstances were not good where he was at. However, that is not what his focus was about at all. Paul was focusing in on, well, God, what is it that you would have me do here? So I think it's a good thing to, to ask ourselves, God, how can I spread the message of the gospel in the circumstance that you have me in? And secondly, what do you want me to learn in my circumstance? And thus you'll be able to rejoice at what God is going to do instead of complaining about what God did not do. And, and so it's really important to have the right focus and the right attitude and the right mindset wherever the Lord may have you. Now, as we look at verse 12, Paul was arrested. He's taken to Rome to be put on trial. He doesn't know if he's going to live or if he's going to die. 
He's in chains, and yet Paul says in another place, I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. You ever heard the saying, blossom where you're planted? Well, Paul was blossoming where he was planted. Now, like I said, he could have spent writing this letter a lot of time saying, oh, poor me, and look how bad I have it. Like a lot of Christians do, you know, but he didn't do that. Dee and I, my wife and I, on our 35th anniversary, were blessed to be able to go to Rome, and then we went on, a, on a, an 11 day uh, cruise uh, in a, on a ship and all that, and it was really cool. We got to see the Mediterranean and go to Greece and all that. But we were in Rome for three or four days before we got onto the ship, and we just decided that we were just going to walk everywhere that we went, and it was, it was pretty neat. But we were walking around all over Rome just looking at stuff and we were walking down this street and we happened to see on this side of this building a plaque that said the prison cell or the dungeon of Paul the Apostle. And so we looked at it and it just was like a out of the way kind of a place. There wasn't a lot of people there. And so we went down into this deep dungeon and sure enough it was this same place that Paul wrote the prison epistles. Philippians and Ephesians and Philemon, Colossians. This is where he was at. And so we were in there and we we're walking around and I am blown away because it is a horrible, ugly, dark, just an awful place. And we're walking along in there, around in there and we see this other guy and his wife and another guy and there's, we're the only ones in there. And which was kind of surprising to me. And so they had all these different scriptures that were written by Paul from the New Testament on the walls from the prison epistles. And so we were walking around, we were reading them. And I look over at this other guy and I said, I said, hey, are, are you a pastor? And he goes, are you a pastor? And I said, yeah. And we just ran over there and hugged each other. He goes, isn't this the greatest place in the world? It was like Disneyland, right? We're like Disneyland for pastors, right? We're in this amazing place, all excited about, wow, we are in the place where Paul wrote these letters. And it was just like, but when you're looking at the place, you're going, this is not the Hyatt Regency. This is an awful place. And yet Paul, in the midst of being persecuted for his faith, his attitude is awesome. His perspective and his focus is spiritual, not fleshly. I want to repeat that. It's spiritual, not fleshly. And so I think that's really awesome when you think about it. And, and when, we, when we're in our circumstances, the circumstances that we're in in life, is our attitude and our mindset spiritual or is it fleshly? Now, if you're kingdom-minded, like Paul the Apostle was, then, of course, you're going to have the spiritual mindset. But if you're worldly-minded or self-centered, you're always going to be complaining about everything that happens in your life rather than looking at it from the lens of God and going, God, you know what? There's a reason that you're teaching me or I'm here and you're teaching me what you're teaching me. And there's, there's a reason that I'm here and it's for your glory. And so Paul was kingdom-minded. Now another thing that he does here is he, he encourages the believers at Philippi not to be overcome with sorrow for his circumstances. Or not to be sympathetic for me. In other words, don't shed a tear for me. <clears throat> because as Paul sees it, he says the things that happened to him were a Romans 8.28 deal. And he said they turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. 
They turn out for good. It's like when Joseph, you guys remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. It's an amazing story. If you've been with Skip for any period of time, you've probably heard him teach on this. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. We know the story. His brothers were jealous of Joseph. He was the, the one that dad gave the coat of many colors. And Joseph was always telling his brothers dreams that he had and how they were going to bow down to him. And So his brothers didn't like him. Some of the brothers really didn't like him. So they decided one day to throw him into a pit and, throw, and then to sell him into slavery. And then to go back and tell dad that he was killed by a a wild animal or something and so they took they put blood on his stuff and took it back and and dad thought he was dead well Joseph goes into slavery and while he's in in Egypt and he went through a lot of dark days and difficult times in Egypt but while he was there the Lord was working in his life and you can see in the whole story the attitude that he had I think we have a little screen meme somewhere the things about Joseph's attitude. And that no matter what he went through, his attitude was, you know what? God is in charge of my life. And so if you know the story, as the time goes on, uh, the brothers show up in Egypt because there's a famine in Israel. And as they show up, they recognize their brother, that he's second in command in Egypt. And they become extremely afraid. But what's really neat about the story is that Joseph, he's not filled with bitterness or resentment or animosity towards his brothers. He looked back at all of it through the lens of God's eyes, through spiritual eyes, and he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so he had a spiritual perspective, not a fleshly perspective. I mean, from the fleshly perspective, I mean, he went through a lot of awful stuff. You would have thought that he would have become angry or embittered towards his brothers and wanted to enact revenge upon his brothers, but he didn't do that. And that's Paul's same attitude. He says, yes, I'm in chains. But the good news is, is that the word of God is advancing. Notice the word in verse 12. There's a word in verse 12 I want you to, to, to see. And it's there, he says, at the end of verse 12, he says to me, and he says, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The word furtherance, it's an interesting word in the Greek. It means a pioneer advance. So it was a Greek military term referring to the army of engineers who advanced before the troops to open a way or new ways into new territory. So instead of Paul being bummed out that he is confined to a prison cell, Paul discovered that his circumstances opened up new vistas of territory for the gospel to spread. So he says, you know what? I am in prison, sure, but this is a pioneer advance of the gospel. So I don't know how you see where you're at in your life if you're seeing it the same way that Paul is seeing it, with the same attitude that Paul had. Look at verse 13. He says, so it has been, become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest at my chains are in Christ. One historian paints a picture of Paul the Apostle and he says this, because Paul was a special prisoner, he had to be guarded 24 hours a day. The shifts changed every six hours, which meant that Paul could witness to at least four soldiers per day. Now how many of you guys think that Paul witnessed to four soldiers a day? 
<laughs> right? Can you imagine being chained to Paul the apostle? You're going to hear the gospel. And so Paul is preaching the gospel. Now these were the elite praetorian guard in Caesar's household. These are the guys that were guarding Paul. So being in prison put Paul in contact with people he could never, he would have never have been in contact with otherwise. And so he looks at it as an opportunity to share Christ. Now imagine being chained to a man as zealous as Paul, a man who was praying without ceasing, as he taught us to do. Paul was constantly praying. A man who was constantly intervening in people's lives and, and trying to learn about their spiritual condition to see if they needed Christ. Praying for their, their lost souls. He was constantly writing letters to encourage Christians throughout the Roman Empire. So Paul's faith was contagious. He was very contagious in his Christianity. And thus the gospel was advanced and it was being furthered because people were putting their faith obviously in Christ. I love what someone else wrote. I don't know who wrote this, but it was genius concerning this text. Sometimes God has to put chains on his servants to get them to pioneer the gospel in new places. I love that. This was Paul. He infiltrated the Roman government with the gospel. And so what Satan meant for evil, God turned around and meant for good. So let's remember this in case we are in a position that we don't feel too happy about or a circumstance that might be difficult. So he says, it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Everybody knew that Paul the Apostle was in prison because of his faithfulness to proclaim the message of Jesus. So Paul's now in contact with all this whole group of non-Christians. And here he is in prison and now they are hearing of Christ. And obviously there were new births, salvations were happening. Now, I don't know, like I said, where God has you. But realize that you are there first and foremost as a believer, as a representative or an ambassador for Christ. And the reason that we are where we are at as believers, I read a book years ago called Disciple by a guy named Juan Carlos Ortiz. And in this book he said, no matter what you do for a living, no matter where your, your career leads you, if you're a Christian and you're born again, you first and foremost that you are there as a Christian, but you're there as, you might be a doctor, but you're there as a Christian first and a doctor second. Or maybe you're a truck driver and you're there first as a believer and second you're working driving a truck. You're there to represent Christ. You're there to be an ambassador for Christ. And so the Lord has us in places so that we can expose other people to the light of Jesus Christ. God wants to use us and even to use our chains to further the gospel. So there you are. You're chained to your job. At least that's what it may feel like to you. But remember, there are people at your job that are chained to you. And so they need to know about Jesus. And that's the right way to see it, that we are to be salt, that we are to be light in this world that is in darkness, that is in corruption, 
And they need godly influences in their lives. And so don't hide your lamp under a bowl. Be bold in sharing the gospel. Be a pioneer and advance the gospel where the Lord has you. I worked when I lived here in Albuquerque. I worked at Honeywell. And I worked at Honeywell for eight years. And the first job that I had at Honeywell, I worked in the stock room and I was, did stocking and all that. And then I got a promotion and I got promoted to work as an inspector. Well, when I got promoted to work as an inspector, um, I had to learn all this stuff about inspecting computer boards and looking through microscopes and reading blueprints. But they trained me. So I got this job and I was so excited. It was an upgrade. And so I sat across from this lady who had been there longer than I had. And I sat across right from her every day for two years. Now, the thing was about this lady is her name was Alice and she was a hardcore, mean, nasty, hateful, brutal atheist. And I'm the Christian. And I'm a pretty young Christian still. But she hated Christians. She hated Christians. She hated Christianity. She mocked the Bible. So every day I came to work and, and I literally, I dreaded it. And I was just like, Lord, can you deliver me from this woman, please? So that I can serve you in the ministry somewhere, you know. And it's like the Lord finally said to me, I have you where I want you because I want you to be a light to Alice. So I went to work prayerfully every day. And I said, Lord, just give me words to say to her. No matter what she says, however mean, however mean it is, however nasty it is, you know, Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. So that I went to, to work with that attitude. And I was like, Lord, just use me for your glory. So Alice would say mean things. She'd say nasty things, whatever, about Jesus, about the Bible. And I always tried to represent Jesus the best I could. And then a great miracle happened. The Lord gave me a job in a different department. <laughs> and I was like, thank you, Jesus. So I, was, I was, felt like I was being delivered from Egypt or something. And so I get transferred to this other department. Now I'm in this other department for several months. And Honeywell's a big building. There was 2,200 people working there, I think, back then. And so I'm walking down the hallway one day, and I see Alice, the atheist, coming toward me from far. And I literally thought, man, where can I turn so that I don't have to talk to her, right? And, but there was no place to hide. And so I just kept walking towards her. And she sees me, and she gets a big smile on her face. And I think, I'm thinking to myself, okay, here, here we go again. She's going to mock the Lord. She's going to say, you're a stupid fool for believing in Jesus. There's no God or whatever she would always say, you know. So she starts getting closer and she's got this big smile on her face. And then she goes, Joseph, guess what? And I said, what? And she goes, I'm saved. No, but I didn't think that. I thought it was a trick. I thought, she's just going to laugh and go, you fool. <laughs> you know, because that's how she was, right? <laughs> I hope she's not here tonight. But anyways, um, uh, so <laughs> if you're here, Alice, please forgive me for telling this story about you. So she says, I'm saved, right? And I go, well, that's nice. That's sort of how I said it. Like, that's nice, you know, and because I'm thinking she's messing with me. And she goes, no, no, really, I'm saved. I gave my life to Christ. And I'm like, really? 
And, I, and I'm thinking in my mind, there is a God. There is a God. I'm like, I mean, like, I cannot believe that this mean, nasty lady who hated Jesus so vehemently now has confessed Jesus as her Lord and Savior, has bowed her knee before, and she said to me, thank you, thank you, thank you, Joseph, for always sharing Jesus with me and always showing me what it meant to be a Christian. And I said, thank you, Lord. All that torture wasn't for nothing, you know. <laughs> so, so it was just a blessing. So, you know, it reminds me to be faithful where the Lord has you, to realize that, you know, God wants to use you. I was praying for deliverance and God is saying, shine my light. Show, the, show her the love of Christ. Now look at verse 14. And so he says, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now Paul's chains did something else. Paul's faithfulness, Paul's boldness, Paul's testimony had also served another purpose to ignite and to excite a fresh zeal in the rest of the believers to be bold and unashamed to share their faith in Jesus Christ. So as they saw Paul and Timothy in prison, they gained confidence to be much more bold in their faith and to speak the word without fear. Now I love, I don't know about you guys, but I love to be around believers whose faith and zeal and boldness inspire me or inspire others. I love to be around those kinds of Christians. We had a, a guy, we have a guy in our church, and we were on a, a trip to Romania. We're going to go to Romania on a missions trip, and uh, there's 18 of us on the trip, and we're going to go from Romania, then we're going to be there for a couple of weeks, and we're going to go to Israel and do some missions work in Israel. And we get on this train from Atlanta down to we had a layover at the airport in Atlanta. We get on this train, and we're going to travel from Atlanta to downtown Atlanta. And we get on the train, and this guy, his name's Bonifacio, he's about 75 years old. We're all sitting in the train quietly. The train is packed out with people, and he stands up and just boldly starts proclaiming the gospel. And I'm thinking, we're going to die. Because, I mean, I just thought these people are going to get mad, right? And he just preaches, and, and the, there'd be a whole bunch of people who would get off the train, and a whole new group, group would get on. He'd start preaching again. And, and pretty soon, like, the crowd was with him. And here's what he was saying. And he said, how many of you on this train want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. You know, and he has this real heavy Spanish accent. And then he goes, how many of you want to go to hell? Raise your hand. You know, he says. And, uh, and so I'm just like watching the whole thing and listening. I'm like, I'm amazed. Like, he's so bold. And so he finally, you know, on one of the trips, because every train, a new group of people. And so he's saying the same kind of message. And finally, he says, how many of you want to go to heaven? How many of you want to go to hell? And this guy goes, I just want to make it to Chicago. <laughs> it was funny. But uh, anyways, but he was, he was so bold. And I thought, you know, how cool is that? Not to be afraid, just to be fearless, a fearless witness for Christ. So I love to be around those kinds of believers because then I get more inspired or I get convicted or I get emboldened to say, you know what, don't be afraid to tell others about Jesus. And so this is Paul. Their zeal for Jesus was contagious. Now I want to be a contagious Christian, not with COVID or anything like that, but contagious for Jesus. Right? And so I want to I, I be able to inspire other people to be excited and bold and less fearful or, or, less, or, or unashamed 
to share their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, Paul prayed for Philemon, and he said, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith. Now, something else also happens in this story that was a good sign that Paul was doing something good. Not only did he inspire believers, but there arose opposition against him. Now, a lot of times Christians get discouraged when they come under attack because they're being faithful to the Lord. And more often than not, I'm going to tell you this, Satan is going to step up his battle against believers that are advancing the kingdom of God. So it's to be expected. Just know that, first of all, Satan's already a loser and, and we are fighting from victory. But don't expect the devil to give you applause or to give you accolades when you're serving Jesus Christ and people around you are hearing the message of the gospel. People around you are turning from darkness to light, from death to life. What you can expect is opposition because Satan hates vocal, faithful Christians who preach the gospel and who live the gospel. Now, he doesn't mind if you preach it and then you're a hypocrite and you don't live it. But if you preach it and you live it, he hates that. And so look at verse 15 down to verse 18, what happens? He says, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or, or, in, uh, or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. So we don't know who it was for sure, whether it was the legalistic Jews who didn't like Paul's message of salvation by faith through grace. And so they were stirring it up, trying to make... Paul's chains worse or trying to make it worse for Paul in prison. And I can tell you this, if you're a faithful Christian, just understand that there are going to be people that just don't like you. In our town in Silver City where I live at, I've been pastoring all these years and there are people that I hear all the time, oh, I hate Pastor Joseph Gross. And there are people that hate me that I have literally never met, never once talked to, but they just hate me because they don't like the gospel and I represent or I share or I teach the gospel. So sometimes you're just gonna be hated or people are not gonna like you just because you stand for Jesus. And Jesus said that would happen. He said, he said the world hated me, they're gonna hate you as well. So that happens sometimes. I don't like to be hated, but it just happens. And so when we're preaching the gospel, a lot of times uh, we are gonna have enemies. And so they were trying to stir up persecution against Paul. Paul says that their motives were evil. They were strife. They were selfish ambition. But what Paul does here is also amazing and inspiring to me because his attitude toward them is not one of anger or vengeance. Notice what he says in verse 18. He says about them, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. So Paul is excited by the fact that Jesus is being told. He's being proclaimed. He's being preached. The NIV says, what does it matter? Or whether their motives are true or false. At least Christ is being preached. And he says, and for this I rejoice. So what a great attitude Paul had. 
Now, that's a great way to look at it, isn't it, when it comes to the gospel? You know, I may not like a person's motives. I might not even know them, or I might think I know them. And I might not like their methods, their motives or their methods in preaching the gospel. But if they're preaching Christ, praise God. You know, I've been a Christian all these years, and I've seen a lot of people presenting the gospel in a lot of different ways in a lot of different venues. Dee and I, my wife and I, when we first got married, we went with YWAM. And we were with YWAM and we had our DTS and in Hawaii. We were suffering for Jesus in Hawaii <laughs> for, for the first, and we were there for six months total, but for the first three months you do classroom and then you go do outreach. And so in our outreaches we would go out and uh, we'd go to Hotel Street in, in Honolulu and, and preach the gospel there. We would do um, skits with, with our faces painted and I kind of thought all that was weird, but you know what? It worked. And there were people getting saved. And, and, and I thought, you know, it's cool how God can use different methods to reach people with the gospel. And so I've seen dramas and, and uh, you know, I've even seen a, a, a guy, a, an illusionist, that was preaching the gospel using illusion. I've seen people preach the gospel and they, their ministry is rap music. And you might go, I hate rap music. Well, not everybody hates rap music. Some people like rap music, and so some people that are believers that can do rap music are Christians, and they proclaim the gospel through their music. And they, they preach to an audience that I probably would never reach. And so God can use all different kinds of music. I remember coming to church here early on, and, and just being a Christian early on here in Albuquerque, and there were bands way back then when I first got saved, like the Res Band and Petra, and these bands, rock bands, and they would preach the gospel. They would use their music as a tool. And then, you know, I've even heard that this can happen, which is to me miraculous, that God could possibly use country music. I'm like, really? No way, Lord. You know, I'm like, can that really happen? Well, I don't like country music, see? And so, um, but I've seen them, you know, muscle men up on stage tearing phone books and preaching Christ and people getting saved. I've seen so many different ways. All tools to be fishers of men. Let me tell you a story that happened in this church when I was here before I left. And this was over 30 years ago, so I hope I don't offend anybody again. But <laughs> I was sitting right over there over 30 years ago. And over on that side, there was some young people. And I was sitting behind a couple of older fellows. And during the greeting time, these older fellows that I was sitting behind looked over there at those young people and those, there was two rows of young people over there and one of them had a big old giant green mohawk. And a bunch of them, they had spikes on and all that. And I heard these two guys and, and they said, we better keep an eye on them. During the greeting time, right? And I heard them. And he goes, uh, one of the guys goes, yeah, well maybe the Lord will get a hold of them. You know, so anyway, that was right when we were getting ready. Dee and I were getting ready to go to New York, and Skip had me come up here, and I shared just what we were going to be moving to New York. I was going to be working with a ministry out in New York, and I got up and I shared some stuff. Well, anyways, after the service was over, the guy with the big tall mohawk came walking right up to me, and he says, "Hey, man, thank you for sharing. That was so encouraging. I just I, I want to be a missionary for the Lord too." He goes. You see all those young people over there? He said, those are all my friends. We were all partiers, druggies. He said, I got saved, and I've been witnessing to all of them, and now all of them are saved. And, and I'm thinking, 
this guy over here was saying, I hope the Lord gets a hold of those kids. And it's like they already had it. The Lord already had a hold of them, you know. And this kid brought all these kids to Christ. And I thought, how cool is that? And so look at verse 19. As we continue on, he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul, he had total confidence in the Lord. Now what helped his confidence was the fact that the believers in Philippi, they were praying for him. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm always blessed. As a pastor, when people say, Pastor, I'm praying for you, you're on my prayer list, and I'm like, thank you so much. You know, prayer is so powerful. What is prayer? Prayer moves the hand that moves the world which controls the universe. And so when we pray, you think about that. What is prayer? Prayer is seeking divine help. Prayer is seeking divine counsel, divine intervention, divine protection, divine provision, divine strength, divine comfort, divine peace, divine deliverance, divine healing, whatever it may be. I've had God do some amazing things in my life. Not that I deserve any of it. But I've had the Lord do some amazing things in my life and I've been healed three different times of major things. I'll share one with you in a little bit, if I remember. But it's so neat when God answers prayer. And so God is able, He is more than able to accomplish whatever concerns us in our lives today, tomorrow, next week, or even yesterday or next year. You see, prayer is powerful because God is almighty. So Paul cherished their prayers. And we need to be praying people, praying for one another. Now look at the last part of verse 19. Paul says, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So he was praising the Lord for their prayers and the supply of the Spirit. Now I don't know about you guys as, as a Christian, but for me as a Christian, one of my daily prayers when I wake up in the morning is I pray, Lord, fill me afresh with your Spirit today. Lord, use me, lead me, and guide me, however you want. Because what I'm praying for is the help and the support, the paracletos, one who comes alongside to help. He is the one that supplies everything that we need. And so that's what I think all of us need above everything, is that fresh help and supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, being filled afresh with the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. And so I pray for that all the time. I pray, Lord, inc increase my supply. Fill me afresh. Lord, overflow my cup. And all of us need that. So Paul had confidence. But his confidence wasn't in himself. His confidence was in the Lord, that the Lord would deliver him and it would be the Spirit's help that it would help him no matter what he had to face, no matter what he had to go through. Now notice again Paul's inspiring attitude and outlook at, look at verse 20. He said, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I love that. <clears throat> Paul says this, that no matter what happens, whether it's by life or whether it's by death, he says, may Christ be magnified in my body. And the word magnified is an interesting word. And it doesn't mean to make Christ greater. He's already as great as he could ever be. Nothing that we can do can make Jesus greater. 
But what it does mean is to cause him to be esteemed or to be praised by others. A guy named Guy King said this, how can Jesus be magnified in our lives? We can magnify him by lips that bear a happy testimony of him. We can magnify him by hands and feet employed in faithful service to him. We can magnify him as we go out and do what he has called us to do. We can magnify him by being on our knees praying for his kingdom and praying for his will. We can magnify him by shouldering other people's burdens. We can magnify him by joyful endurance in sufferings. We can magnify him in self-sacrificial service. We can magnify him in generous giving. We can magnify him in loving our enemies. And so his hope, Paul says, that he in no way would be ashamed, but that he would have all boldness that Jesus would be magnified. Paul was just saying this. I'm paraphrasing what I, I believe what he was saying. He says, you know what? I just want to live full on for Jesus. Holding nothing back. I want to live for him and I want to die for him if need be. I just want Jesus magnified. And what a commitment that Paul displayed. He was 100% sold out in life and he was 100% sold out even in martyrdom or in death if need be. Paul's goal and passion and his motivation in life was Jesus. That's what he was all about. Look at verse 21. And he says, for me, or for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now I wonder how many of us in this room could say this and really, really mean it? I wonder how many of us could say this as the church in the United States and really, really mean it. You know, I read a lot about Christians in places like India and China and Iran and Pakistan and Egypt. And so many of them are totally sold out and willing not only to live for Jesus but also to die for Jesus. Some of the missionaries that we have supported as a church over the years um, are literally giving up everything their, their livelihoods here, their houses, everything. And they're moving to other countries to reach people with the gospel. And they're trying to reach the Hindus or the Buddhists or the Muslims. And when they leave, a lot of them expect never to even ever come back. They might not ever see their families again. And when many of them commit to go, they're literally committing their lives possibly to martyrdom. Because that's what happens to many who are faithful in Christ. I remember Skip telling a story about the Moravian missionaries years ago, and it really stuck in my mind. But he was telling the story about these Moravian missionaries, and they would sell themselves as slaves. And so they wanted to reach people that were on the slave ships. So they would go, they would to the ports, they would sell themselves into slavery, knowing that they would never see their families again. But they wanted to reach all of those people on those ships with the gospel of Jesus. So when they would sell themselves into slavery, what they would say is this. May the lamb that was slain receive the just reward for his sufferings. That was their attitude. Lord Jesus, these people need to hear about you. And Jesus, you suffered and you gave your life for them. The least we could do is give our lives to tell them about you. So they could be saved and have eternal life like we do. And that was their attitude. And so how awesome it is. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. 
And so his life was lived no longer for himself, but for Christ. Now probably a lot of American Christians could say, for me to live is wealth and to die is to leave it all behind. <laughs> you know. That, I mean that would be our confession for some Christians. Or for me to live is pleasure. Or for me to live is power. Or for me to live is fame. On and on. But how many of us could truly confess, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Do we see dying as gain? A lot of us are like, you know, I don't want to die because then I'll have to leave everything behind. I'll have to leave all my money behind and my fun and my, my popularity and my, all the things that I've accumulated. I'll have to leave it all behind. I'll be losing everything. Of course I don't want to die. You know, I had a heart attack four years ago. And I was in denial while I was having the heart attack. I got out of church on a Sunday. We went home and I started having chest pains. And so I kind of ignored it. And then, you know, we were watching the, the NBA finals, I remember. It was in June, I think. And so watching the finals and I was having these chest pains. And so I went and I took some aspirins. And then I kept watching the, the game. And I think after about three or four rounds of taking aspirins every couple of hours, I finally told my wife, I said, I'm having chest pains. I don't feel good. She goes, well, you better take some nitroglycerin. I had some nitroglycerin there at the house. And I said, no, I don't want to take that because I heard you get a headache if you take that. And so I didn't take it. So the evening went. And I just stayed quiet, but I was really hurting. My chest was hurting and stuff. And, and so we went to bed, and I couldn't sleep almost the whole night. I couldn't sleep. She was sleeping, and I kept thinking, maybe I should wake her up and tell her she needs to take me to the hospital. But I, I laid there, and I remember praying a lot and talking to the Lord a lot and, and just saying, Lord, you know, have mercy. Lord, I, I, if this is a heart attack, take it away from me. And I was just praying for the Lord to heal me and stuff. And, and, and all night this went on. And finally in the morning... It's like six in the morning and it started feeling like I had heartburn. So I got up and I went into the kitchen and I looked in our cabinet and I found some Maalox. And so I took a big old chub, you know, Maalox. And it's like, ah, I feel better. I felt better. I go, I think I'll go golfing. And so my friends and I all golf. Some of the guys from the church, we golf every Monday. So I went to the golf course and I took some aspirins and I took the Maalox. And so we get on the course, and I decided since I wasn't feeling too good, I wouldn't walk, I would rent a cart. So I rented a cart. Well, the whole time, uh, still my chest was hurting, and I was taking more aspirins and drinking that stuff. And, and so we get all through the round, and I actually played my best back nine ever while I was having a heart attack. And so we get to the end of the, the round, and my son-in-law's with me, and he's an EMT. He's a firefighter. And I, I, I told him, Zach, man, I'm, having, I'm not feeling good. I said... I don't know, I might be having a heart attack because my dad died of a heart attack at 52. And I'm 55, I already beat the world record, you know. And so the family and kind of thing. And so, so I'm, I'm thinking, man, I, I think I'm having a heart attack. And so um, we're driving home and he goes, I'm gonna take you to the, to the fire station and, and check you and all that. And I go, no, 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 that's okay. Uh, and then he goes, you wanna stop for an ice cream? I'm like, yeah, let's go to Dairy Queen. So we stop at Dairy Queen and I get an ice cream cone and we're driving home and he's like, I'm gonna take you to the hospital. I go, no, no. I said, I'm too sweaty. If I die, I don't wanna die sweaty. So let's go home and I'll take a shower. And so we walk in and I walk in the house and my wife's sitting in the living room and she said I literally looked like gray. 
like all my color was gone. She said it was scary looking, right? And I, I felt horrible. And so I told her, I, I go, I'm going to take a shower and then I'll go to the hospital. And I said, come in there in case I die. I don't want to be laying there naked when the EMTs come. So put my underwear on for me, I told her. <laughs> so I was planning ahead, you see? And so anyway... <laughs> So I went in there and I took a shower and then they took me to the hospital and sure enough, they get, and one thing I learned about going to the hospital is if you're having chest pains, they move you to the front of the line in the emergency room, which I thought was kind of nice. And so they put me in the front of the line and they're, they're working on me and the head nurse, the charge nurse goes to our church. So they're working on me and they start doing all this and sure enough, I'm having a bad, a, a big heart attack. The big one, you know, I'm having the big one like uh, Sanford and Son or whatever. And so, uh, and so I'm laying there and they're working on me and then they're going to they're gonna have to fly me from Silver City because we're not a major hospital to Las Cruces because they have a heart specialist and heart, uh, you know, hospital thing there. And so they, they're getting me get ready to put me on the helicopter. And so they get me onto the helicopter and, you know, I always wanted to ride in a helicopter. It was on my bucket list. Just not like that, you know. And so I'm on a gurney. I'm laying there. And, you know, uh, one, of my, one of my elders was there from the church. And, 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 and it was like this moment of a movie. And uh, we look at each other. And I said, Matt, if I don't make it, tell everybody I love him. And he gets tears in his eyes. And we're like, you know, we're about to cry and, and everything. And so we, I take off flying. And, but here's, here's, here's the point. While I was flying and I was praying... And I was saying, Lord, if you're going to take me, make me ready. Just make me clean so that when I meet you, I have, I'm unashamed. I, I have no sin. I've, I've been washed by your blood. And I said, but Lord, if it's okay with you, I would like to stay. And I didn't say, Lord, I want to stay because I have a brand new four-wheeler that I'd really like to ride. That's not what I said. I said, Lord, I'd like to stay because I want to be with my wife. I want to be here for my grandkids. I want to be here for the church. I want to proclaim the gospel. I want to be able to stay and serve you, Lord, if it's your will. And we're flying, you know, and, 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 and I remember the pilot. He was a Christian. Uh, one of the nurses was a Christian. And they were, Pastor, we're praying for you. And I, thanks, you know, I'm laying there. And, and uh, I'm looking out the window. And I'm trying to enjoy the flight, you know. And thinking, well, at least I get to fly in a helicopter, you know. And so we, we get ready to land. And, and the, I remember the pilot says, we're five minutes out. And I said, Lord, I might make it. And I'm thinking, we land, we get, they take me in there, they rush me in, they start working on me, and my heart stopped. I didn't know it stopped, but it stopped. And they got me back and all that. Well, the cool part about the story is, uh, is that when I got through all of the mess and they put two stints in my heart, the cool part about the story is that the doctor comes in and he just reams me. He says, you waited way too long. You should have come right away when your chest started hurting. And I kept denying it, went golfing and all that, right? And so... He says, now you've damaged your heart. There's moderate, there's, there's a major, moderate, and minor. And he says, you've moderately damaged your heart. He said, you're never going to be the same. You're going to not be able to run. You're not going to be able to, you're going to be out of breath when you go upstairs. He said, and this is what happened. You're, you killed some of your heart muscle. And so I was, you know, he's talking to me and, I, and it felt like I was in a cage and it was getting smaller and smaller. And I was thinking, oh, bummer, man. And so I said, can I lift weights? Because I like to go lift weights. And he goes, yeah, you can lift weights, but you can never lift heavy again. He said, you can only lift light weights and high reps. And so that happened on a Monday. 
Wednesday, they let me out of the hospital and get home Thursday. I rested. Friday morning, I go to the gym. And uh, I'm at the gym. And in my little town, our little town, everybody hears everything. So they knew that I had had a heart attack. And so I'm there working out. My son-in-law is there with me. And, he, and, and I'm lifting these little tiny 20-pound weights, right? And he goes, hey, he yells across, how does it feel like lifting those girly weights? He tells me. And I go, it feels better than picking up daisies or lifting up daisies or whatever. And so... But here's the cool part of the story. Moving forward, I had to go back to see the doctor. But the doctor couldn't see me because of my insurance. And so I had to go see a different specialist. To make a long story short, I go in. The specialist looking at all of the stuff, the damage that happened on the day of the heart attack. Um, they've done all these other tests on my heart now. And he says, you know what? He says, let me show you. He said, your heart, here's where you had the heart attack. Here's where they put the stents in. He said, there's absolutely no damage on your heart at all. He said, and... He said, it looks like you've never even had a heart attack. He said, I don't know what happened, but he said, your heart looks normal. And I said, I know what happened. <laughs> I told him. I said, lots of people were praying for me, and I believe the Lord healed me. And then he goes, don't go think you could be a weekend warrior now. You know, tells me to chill out a little bit. But, you know, it was such a blessing, the, the power of prayer and God answering prayer. But, like I said, I wasn't caring about worldly stuff anymore. All I cared about knowing that I was going to meet the Lord, was, Lord, make me ready, and Lord, can I stay and serve you? And so what a blessing, you know. That was Paul. And, and here's the thing. When Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain, that's what he literally meant that. If I die, Lord, it's going to be gain because I'm going to be in your presence. So Paul knew that if he lived, he was going to live sold out for Jesus, but if he died, he was going to be in the presence of the Lord. And what a blessing to understand that. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says basically the same thing. To be apart from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So Paul, he talks about being with Christ is gain. None of us on the day, the second that we enter into the presence of the Lord, I don't believe any of us as Christians are going to go, Lord, oh, I miss earth. <laughs> We're not going to do that. We're going to be like, yes, we made it, you know, and, and we're going to be thankful that we're in the presence of the Lord. We're not going to be regretting that we left earth. So Paul is, he's saying to live is Christ to die is gain. Look at verse 22. We better hurry. We're almost out of time. Look at verse 22 down to verse 26. And so he says, he says, but if, if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my, from my labor. Paul planned, if he was here, to continue to be fruitful for Christ. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So he was like, man, if I know if I'm going to leave, it's going to be way better to be in the presence of the Lord. None of us as Christians should be afraid of dying because we have eternal life. It's a promise. Nevertheless, verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you Paul says, you know what? You Christians in Philippi, if I stay, it's going to be a blessing for you because I can continue to help you to grow in your walk with the Lord and disciple you. Verse 28, and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. Verse 26, 
that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So Paul says, when I get out of here and I see you and your prayers have been answered, you guys are going to be totally excited. You're going to be rejoicing. We're going to rejoice together. So Paul's confidence was, you know what? I believe the Lord's going to keep me here. And the Lord did keep him there for a little bit longer. Look at verse 27. Then he says this, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I love this this portion here. What a great exhortation. He says, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What an exhortation for every Christian. Ephesians 4.1 says, I urge you to live life worthy of the calling that you have received. Colossians 1.10, flip over there real quick. Look what it says there. The same kind of exhortation. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is God's desire for every one of us as Christians, that we walk worthy of the gospel, that we are obedient that we're glorifying the Lord, that we're bearing fruit. We're called to live a life worthy of the calling that we receive. The Phillips translation says, whatever happens, make sure that your everyday life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. The King James says, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Another version says, live in such a way that you are a credit to the message of Christ. How awesome is that? Be a Christian that is a credit to the message of the gospel of Christ. We should be Christ-like. We're here on this earth, but our citizenship is in heaven, but we're representatives of heaven. And so we should practice what, what in profession and confession, we should practice it in living. If you're a Christian, act like it. Live like it. Don't give the enemy ammunition to accuse you of being a hypocrite. A, a, a guy said to me the other day, Pastor, how can I not be a hypocrite? I said, don't be one. It's pretty simple. And so he exhorts them to one mind, one spirit, unity, that they stand for the gospel. And, and, he, and notice we are in a battle. Notice as we, fin- as we finish this off. Look at verse 28. He says, And not in any way terrified by your adversaries. As a Christian, we're going to have adversaries. But don't be afraid. He says, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. He says, as you stand firm in Christ, they will see that you are fearless and they will know there's something different about you. And then he says, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. As a Christian, we have a privilege, the privilege of believing, the privilege that goes along with believing, and that is suffering for Christ's sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me. He says, guys, there's a spiritual battle. We, it's going to intensify. Don't sweat it. Just live for Christ with your whole heart. And so that's what we're called to do. And so I'm here just to kind of encourage you as Christians to live full on for Jesus. The time, I believe, is short. Let's make the most of every opportunity, the time that the Lord has given to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the love of Christ that compels us. The love of Christ and the mercy of Christ that has saved us. 
and the blood of Christ that has washed us and the spirit of Christ that has made us born again and made us a new creation. Lord, may we live every single day on fire and zealous for you. Lord, the least we could do is serve you with all of our hearts. Lord, help us not to be distracted by the world or the things of the world, but to live for you full on. And so that when we meet you, Lord, we will be unashamed before you. We ask these things, and I just pray a special blessing on all the believers in this room, that every believer in this room would just be filled afresh and empowered by your Spirit to live their lives sold out for you, to live as Christ, and to die as gain. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you. Thanks. And thanks, Skip, for letting me come. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.